Hello and welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. This is episode 26. It's no secret that here on the podcast and in the team and leadership development work that I do, I love to talk about professional sport as an example of an environment that is completely focused on results. Professional sportsmen operate in a world of extremes. Performance is scrutinized from every angle. Victories are sweet and losses can be devastating. Moments of brilliance and bumbling errors are public, glaring and career-changing. And because of all that, the hyperbole in which they operate, the world of professional sport has done as good a job as any industry of changing with the times taking on board new ideas, science and theories that improve performance and keep them, if not ahead of the pack, but at least in the same league. My guest in today's show has been part of the revolutionary change in the way professional sporting organisations operate for more than 30 years. Since 1990, Steve Nance has been the Director of High Performance with a host of impressive sporting outfits. From the NRL international and super rugby, the English Premier League, and a host of rugby clubs through the UK and France. Steve began his work in an era in which players at the highest level would come from the sporting field and crack open a beer. And he's seen the changes that have rapidly taken hold of his industry to the point where now, in no matter what sport you follow, the players filling your team's jerseys are more like finely tuned machines than they are human beings. Steve has worked with some of the most legendary coaches and players across multiple sports. He's been part of teams that have performed well beyond expectation, and he's seen teams that have ripped themselves apart with poor attitude and inept leadership. And the good news is that he spins a great yarn. If you're a fan of any sport, if you're interested in revolutionary changes in thinking and the art of enhancing performance, you're going to love my conversation with Steve Nance. Steve Nance, welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. Thank you. You have had one incredible busy career. To give our listeners an idea of the scale of experience and the quality of expertise we have joining us today, I'm going to run through what will, in essence, just be a highlights package of the work you've done. Performance Director for the Wallabies, the Brisbane Broncos, the Fulham Football Club, and the Queensland Reds. You've been Head Performance or Performance Consultant at the London Broncos, the London Irish, and a couple of clubs in France. Strength and conditioning coach at the Brisbane Broncos and the North Queensland Cowboys. And I note that you've worked with the Brisbane Broncos in different roles on at least three separate occasions. The first being in 1990 and the most recent in 2005. You've been a lecturer and research fellow at Leeds University and Roehampton University. You've advised governments on health issues and policies. And of course, you're a much sought after keynote speaker. And your career, as it stands, has been bookend by working at elite private schools. You were at Ipswich Grammar from 1983 to 1994, where at some point you became head of PE, 
and the first 15 coach where you won the Jeeps comp undefeated. You currently work at the Brisbane Boys College as the head of strength and conditioning. And from 2003 to 2005, you worked at my old school, John Paul College. So that is quite a mouthful. And when you hear your enormous career played back like that, what kind of memories does it trigger for you? Sort of the biggest trigger is I'm getting older and older because it goes back a long way. But uh, you know, there's been some great highlights. There's undoubtedly winning the World Cup in 99, getting that medal from the Queen is something I never thought I'd ever do in a, a month of Sundays. Working with the Broncos so successfully through, as you said, three different times. I suppose, you know, the, the couple of the premierships, we won four premierships when I was coaching at Ipswich Grammar School and I didn't think much of it, but uh, I'm now working at Brisbane Boys College and they've never won the competition ever in the history of the, of the comp. So uh, it'll be good to get a win up this year if we can. But uh, it's not only the wins, it's just the people I've met, the, the experiences, you know, working overseas, travelling, you know, I was, you know, especially when I was with the Wallabies, I travelled the world with sport and people couldn't pay enough money to be able to do it, but I was doing it and getting paid for it, so... I've been very, very fortunate with my career. When you think about strength and conditioning in, in the professional modern sportsman, and you compare what was going on in your job in the Brisbane Broncos back in 1990 compared to, say, what you were doing with the Queensland Reds most recently in 2010. Well, the change has mainly been sports science. It's, a, it's unbelievable. I, we talk about the thing called recovery, just one aspect of it. Back in 1990, there was no recovery. Players came off the field, they're in the dressing room. They actually had to take a can of beer who was sponsored by Powers. They had to either have a light or a heavy. That was the only option they could have. And when they were interviewed, they had to be seen drinking a beer on the TV cameras and to promote the product, which I'm not that you know against, but uh, we had no nutritional fluid intake, no active recovery, no ice bars, no anything of the things that everyone's doing today. And then we wouldn't see the players for two or three days and they'd come back on a Monday or Tuesday not be in any state probably to train till Wednesday or Thursday, then they'd play again. And uh, and we were one of the more professional clubs in 1990. So I just hate to think what was going on at the other places. And that's probably one of the reasons we were successful. You know, Kelvin Giles worked there and he was he came from a British track and field. He's a bit of a disciplinarian. And uh, I learned a lot from him. I learned a lot from my background in, in surf boat rowing. You know, that's my connection with Rob McQueen. So it's been a, a massive change. People go overboard a little bit on sports science and they think that, Sports science replaces hard work, but it doesn't. I'm going to ask you in a minute where it's all heading. But just on reflection about what you've said then, in hindsight, it must feel and sound crazy to you in those days in 1990 when they came off the field, the first thing they did was to crack open a beer. It will sound crazy because of what you know now, but back then, did you sort of feel as a fitness guy that that wasn't right? Look, I had a beer with them. That was probably the hardest part. But uh, there wasn't much research on recovery. And it, it wasn't until really the mid-90s that it start, they started to get some you know, scientific research to say that there was certain things you had to do. And even now, this, it's still evolving. But uh, things like adequate nutrition and fluid intake after heavy competition was about, but the players weren't interested and the coaches weren't interested because it was a, we inherit, I inherited that mentality from the amateur days and the, and the early professional days because that was one of the, the greatest things about it, getting in the dressing room, singing the team song, having a few beers before you went and did anything else. And I remember Darren Lockyer when we started to bring in recovery protocols, so they had to have proper nutrition. They couldn't have a drink until they'd had their fluid checked. They had to, you know, they had to uh, do 
do an active recovery session and so forth. He said the dressing room lost a lot of the ambience that he used to love as a young bloke when he first came down from the country when they were winning the, the good times we had. And I remember getting the plane back from Sydney on ANSET, ANSET Airlines in the early days, and we had the whole plane. The supporters and the, and the girls just left the trolleys in the middle aisle and they didn't service. They just said, help yourself. And when the trolley was empty, they just brought more beer and drinks out. And it was just a big party. You know, one of Wayne Bennett's favourite sayings is um, losers have meetings and winners have parties. And we <laughs> didn't have many meetings because yeah. we, we won a fair bit of, you know, a fair few of the games. So someone at Darren Lockyer's age, his era, they were really there for the transition of that they real were. party boy, let's have a beer straight after the game, right at the end of his career with this really scientific approach. Yeah, he, he would have been a classic because he started there in that era when we still had Alf and Kevy and, and Wendell and those guys playing and we still didn't know much about what was the right thing to do to when the, they brought in so, you know, a lot of the science behind it. And now if you go down there, you know, there's 26 people working at the club. There's 26 staff. There's, there was there's, you know, maybe up to 10 people doing what I did by myself. That is incredible. The growth in the number of support staff that follow around professional teams has it necessarily made things better? Well, sometimes I wonder, I look at it, how everyone's meaningfully employed because you, you have bits and bits and bits, but you've, you know, they've got a good setup because they have a coordinator that puts it all together. Wayne doesn't go and talk to each individual, the sports scientist or the, the exercise phys or the physio or whatever. He speaks to their performance director, Jeremy Hickmans, and he gives a report to him. And it's a good way if someone can filter all the information, but there is a lot. I mean, you go down, there's two guys doing their PhD from, I think they're from Newcastle University. They just look at GPS data the whole time. Everyone's got live and, and uh, delayed GPS information, and that's analysed after every game. They're loaded and so forth. It's unbelievable when you think about it. So you might be on the support staff of the Brisbane Broncos and not really ever have a direct conversation with Wayne Bennett. <laughs> I was in charge of the staff at, at the Prison Broncos, and sometimes I didn't talk to Wayne. Really? But he's, uh, he's, he always said hello to me in the morning, but that was sometimes it. Really? But he's famous for his relationship with his players. Is that, is no, that he's real? got a good relationship. Don't get me wrong. That's not a bad relationship. But I used to, you know, I, I went on a family holiday with him up to Caloundra, and that's how he first he, he bought a place up there after he'd been up there a few times. And, uh, and we drove back to training uh, three nights a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And he used to drive because he had, he had the company car and he paid for the petrol, so I used to sit in the passenger seat. And one afternoon, I remember driving, picked me up, and I said, G'day, Wayne. How are you going, Nancy? You all right? And he didn't say another word till we pulled into the training ground. Not one word. So what we see in press conferences and, and, and on the news is pretty much Wayne Bennett. Well, he works on the premise that if he's got nothing to say, he doesn't say it. Right. And he doesn't waste words. Yeah. And he's been like that all – and, he, you know, he's, as a staff member, you knew that if he said something to you, he questioned something that he was questioning if you're doing the right thing or not. If you didn't say anything, he agreed with everything you were doing. And that was probably a good thing he didn't talk to me that often because he thought I was doing a pretty good job. <laughs> so we talked earlier about the change in science, and, and that's fascinating to me. And it seems to me, as an avid fan, a, perhaps an obsessive fan of sport, I've watched this change go on, and, and it's left me scratching my head sometimes and wondering if perhaps – some information is dangerous rather than all information. And I'll tell you what I mean. I can still name for you the Wallabies that won the 99 World Cup. I can still name that team from 1 to 15. I can still name for you from 1 to 11 the cricket teams that Steve Waugh used to lead. I can't tell you 
within 20 blokes of accuracy who was in the last Wallaby side. I wish I had the numbers with me now, but the number of new caps that we've given out for both the Wallabies and the cricket team, and they seem to have paralleled the way they've done this with needing to rest fast bowlers and to, you know, the Wallabies feel as though they've got to have not not 17 or 18 blokes who are prepared for test rugby, but 25, 30 blokes who are prepared for test rugby. And it seems to me as a team guy, a leadership guy, as though their pursuit of using sports science to their advantage has taken something away from that feeling of I'm in this team. I own my spot in this team. I mean, can you imagine Glenn McGrath being rested because they said, mate, you've played three tests in a row, have this one off? Well, look, it's a good point, but if you've got information that the key performance indicator that's going to lead to a so fast bowler stress fracture in his back, if he plays three games and breaks down in the fourth, then it's a good guideline. You don't need much sports science to work that out that you know he can't tolerate the workload. But uh, see, we, we in 1998 when I came on board with the Wallabies, we'd been flogged by the Springboks by 60-odd points. We'd been flogged by the All Blacks by 50-odd points. And the coach had used, not Rob McQueen, but Greg Smith had used a lot of players in that era. I was talking to one of them yesterday, Garrick Morgan. And um, he was, you know, we were talking about it. And when I came on board in really 98, the first six tests, we actually broke a record. We started with the same team. So we had the 1 to 15 was exactly the same in the first six tests. And it had never happened before. They went through all the archives. And the only one that was different out of actually the 22 was Jason Little sprained his ankle in the dressing room before the uh, training just doing a little jog in the dressing room. He tripped over something and one of the reserves was different, but otherwise it was all the stuff. And that gives a coach, I'm telling you, as having been a coach in a lot of sports, but that gives a coach a lot of confidence to be able to put the same team on the paddock week after week. And a lot of confidence for the players it themselves. certainly does. Certainly I, does. I know that sometimes when the Wallabies try and explain it and cricket the same, I, I feel, as I said before, as they've really paralleled each other in their approach, they explain it to us as the fans is, hey, we need to have people we can call on who are test match ready. They've got that experience. I would suggest that, you know, someone coming in and making their debut, even in a big game, would be a lot more secure if they were coming into a team that was fixed and settled and confident, rather than having 30 guys have all played five tests and don't know whether they're going to play the next test. Mm -hmm. Why don't we have 15 guys who play every test, unless someone's injured or badly out of form, bring in a debutante to what is a really settled unit. That's my thoughts as a, as a team guy. Well, I think that's the, the good coaches do that with, with their planning, with their succession planning with uh, Rob McQueen. We constantly looked at five years ahead and it, well, it wasn't really me looking at it, but they asked me physically how, how young players and, and even to the schoolboy level when they were under 20 level, how long will it be before these guys are physically ready and the coaches have an, give an opinion on their skill and their and their quality of play, to look at if Phil Kearns retires in 1999, who's going to be the next hooker that's going to back, back up you know, Jeremy Paul or Michael Farley, whoever it was. And it was a really good plan. It really worked out because they'd bring in, like you said, one or two guys each year and one or two guys would move. The worst thing can happen in places, and it happened in Australian cricket, is when five or six of the top-line players all stop playing at the same time. Yeah. It happened to the Brisbane Broncos. Yeah, You had that nucleus of world-class players and they all stopped. It nearly happened to the Wallabies after 99 because a lot, when we won the World Cup, a lot of guys stopped playing, but we had enough depth to cover it to 2000, 2001. You mentioned the hooker. Of course, I, one of my interviews is Brendan Cannon that I Can did I, yeah. not long ago, and he was an absolutely fantastic person to talk to. So if you're listening to this and you haven't listened to 
to the Brendan Cannon episode, please do so. So sports science, where is this all headed, mate? From the changes we've seen in your career, is there an end point? Does this stop somewhere or do we get to the point where one day we're essentially watching cyborgs run around in rugby jerseys? Well, you nearly are now. You can The amount of information you get back directly from players is unbelievable. Just with GPS, just you know, live telemetry, live GPS, uh, contacts, deceleration, acceleration. But uh, it'll come to the point, I'm sure they'll put some sort of a chip in someone and it'll tell you how the person's body's functioning. I mean, I did some studies with a guy called Christian Cook who was a Kiwi, responsible for a lot of the All Black success and he's been over in England. He's a PhD, he's a doctor, he's a very, very smart probably arguably the smartest sports scientist I've ever met in my life, both academic and practically. And he used to take dermal layers of skin off players instead of doing blood testing. And he'd get a 90, he, he believed 99.9% accuracy for, from a dermal skin. didn't hurt them. And uh, he could go into the All Blacks when Graham Henry was coaching and say, he's right to train today. He's not right to train. You've got to rest him for one more day because he hasn't recovered from the test match on Saturday with the data he'd get from their skin. And in a half-hour test, he'd come back in before the meeting was over and have the list of players and say, his body is showing, still showing signs of fatigue. Now, that was back in 2005, and people wondered why the All Blacks are so successful. And I was there, I was, I was privy to the camp. In fact, I was talking to Graham Henry about two weeks ago when I was in New Zealand through a friend of mine, and I, we were laughing about how they let me into the camp because I actually got back into rugby union. You after, spy. Well, I was working with the Broncos, so there was no conflict of interest, but I actually got back into the rugby after it, so. <laughs> that's, that's a stretch, no, no conflict of interest. So I'm going to keep going with this theme for one more question in this change in, in the type of athlete that was representing our, our rugby league and rugby union teams and our, even our cricket teams in 1990 compared to now. When I first was a fan of, of rugby, the Queensland Reds needed a new fly half because their fly half was injured. They would pick the best fly half from club rugby running around. And that was the natural step. But these days it seems to be very different to that. There seems to be a, another layer in between. There seems to be players that, who at a very young age, they go into inverted commas, the system and they're in the, the system. And now if someone gets injured in the Queensland Reds, it's not as if often they go looking for that best player in the club comp. It's someone who's in the system. Is it because when you're full-time, you're in the system, your strength and conditioning is just by far and away more superior than someone who has got a full-time job and goes and plays club rugby on the weekend. So even if they are excelling at club rugby, they're not the next natural step to the Reds. Well, you, you, it's not just the strength and conditioning. I think it's nutrition, you know, physiotherapy, backup, just the coaching, you know, having full-time coaches that, that work with you all day. And some of the stuff, you know, you know Again, I'll go back to the All Blacks. You know, I was talking to the skills coach, who's Mick Byrne, who's an Australian guy. He's come back to work. At, I'm doing some work with him through a, a, the Sports Tech Academies that Rod, Rod Kafer's set up in Australia. And uh, he was telling me that Richie McCaw didn't have a left to right offload. He couldn't pass the ball in contact left to right. Every time he did it in games, he'd either throw a bad pass or drop the ball. And he watched game after game. And so they worked on that for a year, just him practicing that offload until his left-to-right offload was better than his right-to-left offload. And it was the only flaw they could find in his game, except he probably gave away too many penalties. He's offside a bit, but that was uh, – if they can do that at that level, then there's a massive amount of work everyone can do. But even at the top level, I mean, he's arguably one of the best players ever 
And uh, if he could have that flaw picked up in their, in their analysis and work on it, and I think a lot of players could work a lot harder on their skills. And that's what full-time does. Full-time gives you the ability to go and lift when you want to lift, do your you know, conditioning, go to the physio when you need, get, get a rub if you want to have a massage, have your recovery protocols in place. You know. Even now, you know, they're putting, in a lot of clubs, they're putting beds in there. So players have a sleep on a double day. In the old days, the players used just to go and they'd come back four hours later. You didn't know what they did. They might have been up at Kentucky Fried Chicken you know, McDonald's, they could have been could have been at the pub. You know, you wouldn't know. Back at two o'clock and gone again. And now it's, you know, the Broncos, they've got a kitchen. The dietitian prepares their meals and they have a double day. And it's so important the way that that's the full time. That's why the, I feel sorry for the club guys. The club guys don't have any support. The rugby clubs especially uh, don't get support. I'm not backing the AAU. I'm not um, knocking the AAU and I'm not knocking the QIU, but they don't get the support they used to get and they need it, uh, especially in the country as well. And it seems like for, from all everything that you've just explained to us, if you're not picked up in the system and you, you don't go into the Reds as as one of the youngsters that are full-time and you get all that treatment you just described, gone are the days perhaps where at 26 or 27, a late bloomer from club rugby might get his first Reds jersey. doesn't happen anymore. Not going to happen anymore. Well, it, this is a whole idea. I don't want to promote the, the sports tech academies, but Rod Kafer uh, – runs a sporting academies in a lot of sports. And one of them is, is what we call rugby tech. And it's for kids who leave school that haven't been identified by the QAU or the Brumbies or the Waratahs or on scholarship. And these kids are 17, 18, 19 years of age. They have a full time, they go and do a business diploma and they do a, a fit certificate in fitness and so forth. So they get an academic qualification in the year, but they also get exposed to full-time coaching and they get exposed to full-time strength and conditioning. And the goal is, and it's already happened, that these guys then pick up late scholarships to go and play in, in professional clubs, whether it's here in Australia or overseas. Yeah. And that's working. That's yeah. working in several sports. So there's one small, quite limited effort to, to bridge that gap that we're talking yeah. about. Because if you don't make the Reds Academies under 16, under, you know, under 17, and you know, all the Queensland schoolboys, it's very, very difficult to crack it. You know, as an 18, 19, 20, you end up going and playing Know, Premier Colts, for, which is a good standard of competition. Yeah, of course. With no support. And then you, and if you don't make the Premier grade, you end up playing first grade or second grade in a club and you turn up Tuesday and Thursday night, Saturday afternoon, you go and have a few beers and you know you do it till you're about 30 and give it away. Yeah. And if you want to do some weights, that's your choice. If you want to go for some extra runs, that's your well, choice. Look, most and, clubs haven't got a weights room. Yeah. I've been around and consulting to a lot of the smaller clubs. They, they don't even have a weights facility. Yeah. And it's a... Uh, they don't have a, you know, it's like it was in rugby league, you know, 30 years ago, 25 years ago. Yeah. I can't wait to hear of that, the next story, if it ever happens, of that guy who wasn't picked up in the academy as a 16, 17-year-old and, and who plugs away in, in premier grade at fly half until he's 26 and 27 and makes it into the Reds. I, I can't wait for that story and find out what, what a special person he must have been. Well, he'll have to be if he ever exists because- He'll have to do all of that himself. Well, it happened back in 99, 2000. John Ray was playing for the West Bulldogs and I was doing some work. My young bloke was playing Colts down there and I was doing a little bit of work with it. When I was back from this with the Australian side, I did a bit of conditioning down there and, and so forth. And I'd watched him play club football and it was pretty good standard, the club football, and it wasn't quite as, you know, knocking it, but it was, not, it was a lot higher standard than it is now. And um, I said to the Australian sevens coach, who was Glenn Eller at the time, he said, is there anyone up in Brisbane that's caught you? And I said, look, there's a guy called John Rowe. He's captain of West. He's, a, he's an intelligent young guy. He's going to be a doctor. He's by far 
head and shoulders above anyone playing in that competition up there. He's a back rower. He gets, keeps himself fit and in good shape. Try him in the sevens program. So they tried him and he ended up playing for the Wallabies. And uh, I think he would have been, I don't know, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but he would have been 21 or 22 at that stage when he first started. So he was a late starter. You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership. All right, we're, we're talking to Steve Nance, fitness guru, someone who's worked all around the world with top-level professional sporting teams. Now, Steve, you would have been part of countless leadership teams in great clubs, really professional clubs, always headed up, I guess, by the head coach. What have you learned about leadership during your journey? Well, people ask me this question all the time. The most important thing I've found is that if you don't have a strong leader and a leader that's respected, it is very, very difficult for the team to perform. And I've been at clubs where the, the head coach hasn't been the real leader. It's been driven by the, one of the assistant coaches and so forth. It hasn't worked. You know, the, the two best examples are Wayne Bennett and Rob McQueen, the two most successful coaches in their codes. Rod would still be coaching, I know, if he wanted to, but he doesn't want to. But his coaching record before he even took over the Wallabies was second to none. Wayne just keeps thriving. I, I don't see as much of him, but I still go down there. It's the same Wayne that rang me in 1990 and said, you want to come on board the Broncos? He just has enthusiasm on. He's well into his 60s and he still gets a lot of kick and time, uh, you know, a lot of time out of uh, and kicks out of working with the young guys. But you, you talk about those guys, Rod McQueen and Wayne Bennett being the standout. A lot of coaches have come and gone during that period, during Wayne Bennett's career. What is it about, what exactly about what they do that is so terrific? On a practical level, the day-to-day stuff that you see, the way they manage their staff and their players. Well, they're two different people. They're not, they, don't, they haven't got the same style. Wayne, as I said, doesn't like meetings, lets all the organisation go to the people that run it. He picks the best people he can to have in place and trusts them. And uh, he lets it filter down. He just likes to do the coaching on the field. He spends a lot of time with the players' welfare, getting jobs for their wives or getting, you know, getting their kids into schools and all that sort of stuff, which a lot of people don't see. He does a hell of a lot of stuff like that. Rod was particularly well organised because he's a business, successful businessman. And so we used to have business meetings. You didn't come in and give you a report. You gave a strength and conditioning download of the week's activities. And uh, it had to be all typed out. He taught everybody to use a computer back in those days because you know, I certainly wasn't. I'm not too good these days, but you know, he taught everyone how to use a, do a PowerPoint presentation because he knew we were going to be presenting to people. So he sent us all away to learn how to use a computer problem. And then we were all given laptops, which was quite revolutionary in, that, in those days. You've got to think that's back in 1998. Computers were certainly in, but they weren't being used like they, they were today. So two very different styles in, those, in these two very successful coaches. Well, Rod, Rod, Rod Rod was of the opinion that if he can get the best people involved and have a reasonably good team, we could put together. So we, the 99 team, I don't think had any weaknesses. We talk about it, but uh, on the staff and also amongst the players, I think we ended up with, you know, they picked the team of the world at the end of the World Cup. I think we ended up with six or seven players in that team, nearly half the team were Wallabies. The guys the year before that struggled to, to even put any points on the All Blacks or Springboks. So he's done something right with that team because the team – it was nearly the same team he inherited that had been flogged the year before and they were very successful. We, we won um, 31 of the 39 tests the three years I was there. That's a massive record. 
you know, especially when you're playing the blacks in the box every every second week. It was a very successful era, maybe our most successful era of rugby. Era it hasn't been rugby. matched. It's never been matched. They've had a look at the records. And it's, it was just a special time. We have a special time when we have the reunions and we talk, everyone's got to get up and talk about it. And I always say, look, this is probably the most special time in sport that I've had because everything just seemed to work. You know, the plan we put in place to, for the World Cup, I did it on with a pencil and a ruler and on two A4 sheets and drew out the periodization model before I could put it on Excel like you can now. But uh, And the last column was, you know, November 5, 1999, Cardiff. And we got there, you know, that all the whole two years. And he told me, don't worry about it. if we'd lose games, during the, just keep developing and developing and developing. And uh, it worked. What about philosophies that don't work? In all of the clubs that you've worked for, all of the head coaches you've seen close up in action, you don't have to name names, although we'd love it if you did. Tell me about some of the, the things and habits, ways of a leader that you just knew this is not going to work, the players are going to revolt, you're not going to get the best out of them, and that you watched it unfold. Yeah, well, I've, I've been in clubs that come last in the competition as well. I haven't, haven't always been involved in teams that have won. And, uh, and I work, Tommy won't mind me mentioning his name, I work with Tom Radonikus. He was the first person that I ever, ever had a professional, semi-professional job with when the Ipswich Jets started. And if you could say that Tom, the next coach I worked with was Wayne Bennett, uh, chalk and cheese. You know, Tommy used to, uh, West Magpies days, you know, he'd come in and have guys slap each other and, you know, I remember he nailed a, um, a Bullock's Heart, the, Lang, the old Lang Park dressing rooms, and put this dirty, great big bull. I didn't realise how big a Bullock's Heart was. It was an actual heart. actual heart, and it was bleeding down the wall. Right. And he's, you know, you've got to bleed for the boys today. And he, he, he said to me, he said, Steve, do you reckon we got to, we can get them to take a bite out of it? And I, oh. said, <laughs> I said, Tommy, I don't think I might be going overboard. I said, just get them to touch it. So the guys had to touch it on the way out, and they all went out in the field with these red, bloody hands. And um, I'll never forget it. And but if he had his way, they would have had to take a bite had to out bite, of it. Take a bite out of it. And, uh, <laughs> he'd come in sometimes, you know, hadn't done too well in the first half, and you have all the cups of Gatorade, uh, you know, Powerade or Gatorade, whatever you have, that all be in the cups on the table. He just tipped the whole lot, tipped it a whole lot over. You're not getting a drink, you don't deserve it, you know. And, and <laughs> it was completely different. When I went into the dressing room with the Broncos, you know, the first time I was assistant strength and conditioning coach, he used to do a lot of work with the reserve grade, but then I'd come and sit and listen to the first grade talk and, at halftime, I'd come in just see. And Wayne, in the years I was there, I only heard him raise his voice sort of three or four times. The rest of the time, I said, why don't you give him a blast? He said, what's the use of me giving him a blast at halftime or full-time? They know what they've done wrong. I've got to give them something, especially at halftime, that's going to make them go better in the second half. If I keep re- reinforcing that they're idiots and they've dropped the ball and they've missed so many tackles, that's not going to help them for the second half. So we're going to talk about how we can not miss the tackles, how we can hang on to the footy and, and so forth. And that philosophy, I think, works. So what were those few times where Wayne Bennett did raise his voice? What was the difference? Uh, a couple of times. When he raised his voice, everyone listens because he, does, he doesn't do it that often. Even if he's chastising somebody, he'll just speak to them. You know, I think you're uh, – I remember one senior player. I won't mention his name, but he, when we had the Super League squad in the Super League war was on, and only 25 players got their own locker for the first time, which was a big deal. You didn't just come in and throw yourself stuff to uh, a Road. And they all got their own locker and, uh, and you trained between 10 o'clock and 3 o'clock. So you have go home with your family, you had a meal there at the club, automatically inherited a Nike sponsorship. So you got all the best Nike shoes. They got about 20 pairs of shoes and all the casual clothes, sunglasses, watches. It was a big deal considering what, they, what was there before. 
And then uh, if you got put out of that squad or you weren't in it, you didn't have your own lock. You didn't have any of those. And you had to train it. You started training at five o'clock in the afternoon, like the amateur players, the players that either worked or the young kids that went to school or university. So, and he threw one of the senior players out in back into, he said, you come and train the reserve grade. And he didn't yell or scream. He just said, uh, you're wasting my time today. You've been wasting my time for the last few weeks. You go back to the twos until you can show any better. And that's how we spoke to him. So the message doesn't need to be yelled. It's a, it's a powerful message just in its meaning. Well, coming, but being a school teacher, you know, I've, I've seen so many young teachers get in and scream and yell yeah. right from day one. And I go up and say, then what are you going to do when you get angry? You can't scream and yell. And I, I like to just talk at normal, to, and, I, and that's why I turn the music down quite often. So if I'm explaining a lift to someone or a different program, I can sit and talk to them like I'm talking to you today. But if someone's not doing something right, I can you know, yell at them and say, look, hey, cut it out. Get back to, you know, and they listen then. If you're yelling all the time, it's no different. Well, I wish you would tell us the name of that Brisbane Bronco, but I respect your decision not to. Have you ever considered using the podcast format to deliver training and development programs to your people? Flexible, cost-effective, convenient, and incredibly engaging. Talk to David today about tailoring a program to suit your needs. So you mentioned Tommy Radonikas, and he's obviously a pretty extreme guy. We, you know, anyone who's been a fan of rugby league, we know of Tommy Radonikas, and he, he's out there. Eccentric, maybe describe him. What about other guys who, who who weren't as eccentric as Tommy Radonikas, but were trying their best? They were trying to think about their approach as a coach, but they were just not getting it right. There, there were flaws in their philosophy. Well, I think people, you know, again, I hate using things Wayne Bennett says, but I think a lot of coaches that worked in the, in his era tried to be like Wayne Bennett. They tried to be Wayne Bennett-like. People tried to be Rob McQueen-like. And Wayne Bennett said, the only person I try to be better than is Wayne Bennett. I'm not concerned. And I've thought about that a lot, you know, and, and why should I em- try to emulate? I, I respect other strength and conditioning coaches and I respect their, you know what they've done. And But it's really Steve Nance that I want to be better. I, I want to be able to, you know, if, if I come late, I want to be able to be there on time all the time or if I... If I'm not prepared, I want to have everything prepared. And so it's me that I want. And people laugh at it, but I still critique my sessions. It's just a thing. So I don't write it down as much, but I still critique it. What could I have done better in that 40 minutes? The session this afternoon that I'll do with the school kids. I've really worked hard on giving them a variety session that's going to hit the nail right on the head, you know, try exactly what needs to be done at this time of the year. And I've planned it. Not just turned up, oh, we might do a bit of this today. Because I've seen that happen in English football. At the EPL, at the, you know, Fulham, I was at Fulham for three seasons and I had three different managers. Two got sacked and I ended up getting moved on with the third one. But um, I saw them come in the morning, good blokes, lovely fellows, but they'd turn up on a morning and say, now what are we going to do at training today? And they couldn't understand how I had an eight-week model of resistance training and eight week, and they could understand how I had a periodization model in the office that they sometimes followed and sometimes didn't. They couldn't figure out how I could plan for six or eight weeks ahead and when they didn't. And uh, they used to fly by the seat of their pants. At the EPL level, that really surprises me. I, I hold that as, as one of the more professional sporting competitions in the world. Yeah, it's a, money. It's a, one thing I've learned, money doesn't mean – I went from there, you know, 40, 45 – I mean, 2008, I think it was, Roy Hodson, who's now the English coach, he became coach there because we look like we're going to get relegated out of the Premier Division down to the, the Championship. And we had to play Portsmouth away. It's a big game. And uh, 
last game of the year and we were sitting in 18th place, the relegation. And the team that was one point ahead of us had a draw. So they went two points ahead of us and they played at midday on the last Sunday and we had a three o'clock kickoff. Down at Portsmouth, Portsmouth had already qualified for the FA Cup final. They were finishing about, they were about seventh or eighth in the EPL. Harry Redknapp was the coach. And uh, at the 86th minute, it was nil all and we were going down. And I asked the marketing guy and he said, it's worth 45 million pounds to the club if we go down to the championship. So $90 million, we think about money. And uh, anyway, a guy called Daddy Murphy on our team, midfielder, heads this goal and we're 1-0 up. The guy hangs, puts the sign up, not nine minutes, seven minutes of injury time and I had a heart attack. <laughs> and I could, and you know, it was unbelievable. But the prep, you know, the amount of money's involved, but the preparation was nowhere near as good as, you know, schoolboy football, I didn't think, physical preparation. The players didn't have to do weights. Guys like Rooney in Manchester United, he's got in his contract that he doesn't have to do weights. <laughs> Why would he go to that effort? Because he doesn't believe they think it's going to slow them down and get them bigger. They have this, this paranoia. You'd swear, we, you know, we had brown snakes and taipans in the weights room. <laughs> yeah, right. I'd have to go and drag blokes in. You know, you've got to come and lift. Just yeah. down. And uh, some of the guys were excellent, but it was a very, very difficult cohort to work with because they were, you know, 10, 15, 20,000 pounds a week. And it was a lot of money. They were getting a lot of money. Yeah, and that, that must change a person. It does. And money, see, money doesn't mean, I went from there to Leeds up in the north of England and worked both for the rugby league and the rugby union team. There were Leeds Rhinos and Leeds Carnegie in the rugby. And uh, we had no money. We were on a shoestring budget. But, you know, one player, one of our front rowers used to catch the bus to training because he had to leave the car with his wife because she had two young kids. At Fulham, when it was raining, they'd leave the Maseratis or the Bentleys at home and only take the BMWs or the Rolls Royce <laughs> or whatever. And the, the players' car park was unbelievable. The coaches' car park was terrible because yeah. you know, we had all bomb cars and, and they had these fantastic cars. So, and I went to Leeds and I, I, one of the first training sessions, I started to justify why we were doing something. And the captain grabbed me by the arm and said, you don't have to justify that to us. We know if you're going to say that that's going to be what we're doing, that's what we're doing. You don't need... And I'd come from an environment where everything I said, I had to justify like a second-hand car salesman. It was questioned by, by these princes of finance. Well, they, they, some of them were fantastic. We had a couple of good guys. We had a couple, a couple of guys from Northern Ireland. We had a big guy from Finland. They wanted to come and do extra. You know, they, they actually could see the benefits of doing extra power or extra, just cross-training boxing. And, uh, but others, it, it was a struggle for them to turn up, you know, and, uh, and do anything. But uh, they, I mean, they were good years, but they were very frustrating for coming from Successful sports, the Wallabies, and you know, we had some success in a lot of success in France. You know, when I went to France uh, in 2000, 2001, and um, to go there and see the attitude, I mean, we weren't going that well. I mean, we, we finished, I think, eighth or ninth in the first year, and then they sacked the coach, and then we finished uh, 15th or 16th, and then we only finished 17th, which is one point of one place above getting relegated. And then I came home and I had my contract ripped up. It was just disappointing, but that's the way it is over there. Look, I, I could talk to you all day about those kind of things, and and particularly the EPL. I mean, it's a it's a fascinating competition, if for no other reason, for the fact that the people who play in there, as you say, and earn themselves sixty thousand dollars a week, and and what that must do to an individual, and then to a group of individuals who are all kicking around that kind of cash, and then being told what to do and and how to train and how to play, that must be a really fascinating dynamic. But that's probably another story for another day. I, I want to finish our conversation by talking about schools and elite private schools. As I said, your career began at 
a private school. Ipswich Grammar, a, a very high performing sports school. Uh, you were there a long time. You were a, a classroom teacher essentially to begin with, became the head of PE and of course the first 15 coach where you had some great success. Then you've done everything that we've talked about with professional sport and now you find yourself back at another elite private school here in Brisbane at BBC. Tell us a little bit about what changed in the decades you were away from private schools. Tell us a little bit about the type of facilities that the boys at BBC enjoy compared to what the Broncos enjoyed in 1990. Well, you know... It's chalk and cheese, but it's the same as most of the private schools. Some of the you know, the gyms in the, some of the private schools in Brisbane are used by the international teams because the club gyms and the, even the professional gyms aren't as good as the, as the facilities they can get into in their weights rooms and so forth. And BBC's got an exceptionally big, plenty of equipment gym. It's a high-performance gym. But just the communication, everyone's emailed on training. They get an email about what they're doing at training, the players and the coaches. So I get an email every night from Shane Drums, the head coach, Drummy played at the Reds, played overseas and I was overseas. Um, and he's he's hot, very professional about the whole thing. I remember when I was coaching, I was there all the time I know and I could go and get the kids out of class and say, look, I'm sorry, you're going to you, you drop this week or, you know, I'm going to put you up in the first this week and or I'd be able to take kids to the physio or the doctor or whatever. But there was nothing like nothing like it is now. We, you know, I coach with usually one other person. Now we've got you know, Van Humphreys, the second row, doing the lineouts and scrums. Taylor Kefu is the advisor. Kieran Lander, the ex-Jets captain, is doing the defensive work. They've got me to do all the strength and conditioning. It's like a super 15 team. I was about to say that. That's the support staff of a super rugby club. And we're talking about schoolboys. Is it overkill? I mean, we all loved playing schoolboy football. It was fantastic. And at the time we were doing it, it was the be-all and end-all in our world. But these facilities that we're talking about, is it because it's great for their rugby or does it just become a, we've got to keep up with the Joneses within the private school system? I think if it's not used properly, it is keeping up with the Joneses. But, you know, hopefully, you know, my input in the strength and conditioning just doesn't stick with the first 15. And already I'm doing some work with the other grades and we've put programs, individual programs right down the under 13s, which has never happened at the place. And I'm really proud of that. That we're, we're But my next step is to get in the general school population and try to get this, uh, you know, the message across about exercise and uh, not that they don't exercise, it's got a big sporting program in the school, but I'd like to see the gym chock-a-block all the time. I'd like to see them, you know, people asking for programs and asking for, uh, and that'll happen. It, you know, they've, they've got a successful tennis program, cricket program, soccer program, and these kids are starting to see the benefits of other sports are doing, you know, not just weights, but having proper recovery protocols and all that sort of stuff. And that's all we're trying to do. Is it overkill? It's certainly a lot more than what I was used to before, but it's still the bottom line is all that sort of stuff, no matter who the coach is and who, what your facilities are, if they don't work hard, they won't win any, any games. And working hard, you know, you can have no facility and still work hard and still get some results. Do you ever look at all the facilities and, and look around at your coaching staff who are all former Wallabies or, or, or roundabout and then go to the game on the weekend and watch them and think, my God, they're still just kids? Well, that's what you've got to remember. There's still kids. And, you know, the bottom line is I'm a big person with education. I think education is the most important thing. And I know that there's a lot of studies out there with the benefits of physical fitness and academic results that it shows. The rowing program, for example, is a tedious and tiring program, but the, the rowers are all, they all excel at school. They're the ones that get up at 4 o'clock in the morning and, you know, train, you know, 10, 11 sessions a week and so forth. But uh, I 
I think you've always got to remember that they are kids. I mean, they're young men. They're 17, 18 years of age, but they're still developing. And that's why you like to think that your influence is going to help their development as much as what you're doing physically with them. In other words, you know, being able to turn up on time for things and being able to turn up with all your gear. And it might sound a little thing, but I've been at places where that hasn't, you know, hasn't been scrutinised. I remember the first time away trip at Fulham, the bus, they said the bus has got to leave for, we were playing Chelsea or someone across the other side of London, big game, and it's got to leave at 11 o'clock. I'm on the bus and I'm sitting there at five past 11, 10 past 11, and I said to one of the assistant coaches, the goalkeeping coach, I said, what's happening? He said, oh, we've got to wait, there's a couple of blokes are going to be late. And I said, well, you know where I come from, the Brisbane Broncos, Wayne Bennett gets on the bus at 11 o'clock and the bus door's shut and you take off. I've been left behind and I didn't get left behind twice. And players have been left behind and they've never been left behind again. And these blokes that turn, oh, sorry, there's a bit of traffic on the M3 or whatever. And, and that breeds, to me, lacklustre playing attitude. It's a you know? sloppy environment. It does. All right, we're going to wrap it up now, Steve. I'm just going to ask a final few questions that I always ask my guests to, so we can learn a little bit about the inherent you. But before we actually get to those, you were a man, You well, let's put it this way, you're not a plumber with a leaky tap. You're a very fit-looking man. What's what? What's your thing? What do you do? I just got into that. You know, I, you know, in, in the personal training or the or people's training, I, I use the analogy of turning on the light. Someone turned on the light to me at a very early age. That the benefits of, of exercise. I struggle when I can't exercise in a day if I've got too much work and or, or if I'm travelling. But um, it's I exercise every day. I I do some boxing tonight. Thursday's boxing night. I've been really enjoying being back at BBC because I've got a heated pool. That's the thing I miss a lot of swimming. So I've been swimming three days a week. But it's a it's a thing that uh, if you can get it into your system that ex- how important exercise is. You know, my diet's good. You know, I probably have too many beers these days and a few too many wines every now and then. But the bottom line is that um, I'm able to do that sort of stuff if I if you know keep my weight down, I exercise regularly and I, and I look after myself. But I think it's a getting it, in, it becoming an innate part of you of your you know your daily pro. I wake up in the morning and I say. My exercise is going to be at 2 o'clock or it's going to be at 9 o'clock and then again at 3 o'clock, personally, and that's it. I prioritise it and I do it. So it's not a chore to do. It's actually something you miss when you don't. Well, I miss it terribly when I don't. That's, um, and, you know, there's a fair, fair few studies about that. With uh, you know, I don't go overboard like I used to. I used to train, overtrain. You know, I look back at it. You know, I've had a lot of injuries and a lot of, you know, all my joints are <laughs> pretty knocked around, but uh, I still I still manage to train for it somewhere between an hour and two hours each day and do different things. It's, uh, it's, it's enjoyable. All right. Steve Nance, final quick four questions. Tell me about the Saturday night you most look forward to. A big party with lots of people you know or an intimate dinner with your closest friends? I like the big party. I still do. Don't have many of them, so it's something I look forward to. I'm going to a wedding on Saturday you know, with some friends, good friends of ours, and uh, I'm looking forward to it, just the, you know, the wedding reception. But I also like the you know the quiet dinner. But uh, my wife likes that sort of stuff. She likes to you know have the nice dinner in the dining room and all that sort of. But I'm I'm sort of like the barbecue with you know maybe watch a bit of footy on a Saturday night and and have all the boys around. All right, good. That that answers my question. What I'm doing here is is a very raw MBTI on you. You know you know about MBTI, I'm sure. Okay, now tell me, are you more likely to get bogged down in detail or caught daydreaming? Daydreaming. Really? Easy. You answered that quickly. I'm, I'm on that. Phil Jauncey, the sports psych, used to do the thing that, you know, you had four quadrants and one was a mosquito. Mm-hmm. Mosquito 
starts things, which I'm very, very good at starting. I'm very, very poor at finishing something. So I'll, I'll be drinking a glass of water, then I'll go over there and I'll go and do something else. And I don't daydream per se, but I, I certainly always thinking about more than one thing. What about making decisions? Are you a slave to a rational thought process or do you make decisions based on emotion? Probably more thought process, but I like making decisions. I hate going to meetings and I've I've been doing it lately and no decision's been made. You'll sit and discuss. I like healthy debate and I like healthy conversation, but I always come away from a meeting saying, "Let's, let's make a decision. If we can't make a decision, take away task and come back and we will make a decision. Because too many people like having meetings. I mean, meetings are meetings, but I mean, I'm not cut out for that. I was approached to be on, become a member of a board of a school. And I said, what's it involved? And they said, a meeting every month. And you've got another meeting you've got to go to because I said, no. Let's have a meeting about the meeting. Well, I, I couldn't do it. <laughs> Very last question. You're going on a road trip. Do you like to book the hotels, plan the route, know exactly where you're going? Or do you just get in the car and drive? No, I always plan. I do a lot of travel overseas. I still do a lot of travel, especially in France. And uh, I always plan my trip. It's, um, but today I plan my trip. But uh, it's important, I think, to have that planning. I like just driving too, but that's when I'm not going anywhere. I used to get in the car in France when I first went over there and I was by myself. On a Saturday, I'd just jump in the car and I'd hear about some region and I'd just drive to it and spend the whole day there. Made it really worthwhile just meeting all the locals and stuff, but I had no plan, but that was different. Steve Nance, a man of your experience, everything you've seen, the era you've lived through in professional sport. It's been such an enjoyable experience talking to you about it today. Thank you so much for coming and having a chat. My pleasure. And that was Steve Nance. He won't mind me saying he's a man who's been around the block a few times. Most of us, fans of various sports, have watched on in amazement as the professionalism, the process of preparation and the physical stature of athletes has evolved across the years. It was just so entertaining to get some granular insight from a man who was part of it all. As always, I'll share the lessons I took from my chat with Steve on the podcast page from this episode. You'll find it on the Team Guru website. That's teamswithans.guru forward slash podcast. Look for us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And of course, you can find me personally through LinkedIn or simply by emailing me, david at teams.guru. I'll be back next week for the next episode on this, my mission to bring the theory of team and leadership development to life. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now.